Friends and enemies, it's episode 299 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, you know, one of the great things about doing TMK is it, it gives me this excuse. It gives all of us this excuse to talk to people who we have, like, We've known through their work and through their posting on Twitter uh, and through all these like really kind of parasocial and digital and indirect ways for a very long time, right? Like we all have these people in our lives that you're like, I feel like I know them, even though you've never actually met or, or talked to them before. And TMK gives this reason and excuse to actually have like a face-to-face uh, sustained real life conversation with those people. And then I can actually justify later being like, no, oh yeah, I know them. I've, I've, I've talked to them for an hour and a half on my podcast. I know them. Um, and I'm very happy to be joined by one of those people and actually make this, uh, make that meeting. Now I can, now I can say, um, in the future, oh yeah, Joanne McNeil, the author of Wrong Way, uh, 2023 slash 2024's great new tech novel. I know her. <laughs> well, that's an amazing introduction. I am a fan of your posts. I'm a fan of the podcast. I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> well, uh, very glad. I'm all, I, and I love when it's mutual, when we can make a mutual connection. So no, um, Joanne, it's really good to have you on because as, as, as we were talking a little bit before recording that um, I have known... Uh, I've known of your work and of your post for uh, a very long time now. I think when I first came across an essay you wrote with um, Astra Taylor in The Baffler on like the the dads of tech. Um, and this is like very much criticism from an early wave of like Web 2.0, hucksters and grifters, the the Clay Shirkies and Jeff Jarvis's. Like, you know, it was only, God, it was only like 10 years ago, right? But it feels like so many cycles ago. These are names that only the old heads remember Clay Shirky and Jeff Jarvis and the, the criticisms of these people. But um, ever since then, I've, I've have very much enjoyed following your 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 work especially as one of these people who are like not coming fresh or new to tech criticism as this idea but has been been in the trenches way before it was um before it was cool to be uh skeptical of of tech i'd be very actually happy to talk about in addition to this great new novel that you have some of the work you've been doing um around uh, you know the tech critical and some of your projects like your your project on myspace which i thought was really interesting and like all of that um there's there's a there's a, a real kind of history here um but all of it leading up to 
uh, as I said, wrong way. Your novel that you are here to promote, people should pick it up. I just finished reading it yesterday. It is really, really fantastic. Um, and I'm and and you know I, I'm I'm excited to get into some of the ideas that motivate this novel, which is you know very much uh, kind of a, a, a doing a form of tech criticism. But what I really love is that you know it is not a a thinly veiled, heavy handed essay, which I think a lot of novels with messages um, ex- can 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 really be just these like these these creative uh, heavy you know creative nonfiction or creative fiction essays. Um, but your 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 book is is not that, and it's actually really refreshing that it has a lot to say about the kind of culture and labor in um in silicon valley specifically around autonomous vehicles is the real kind of setting of the book um but it is everyone i've been talking to about the book when they're saying what are you reading and i say you're a novel i'm like you know this is a novel in the sense that truly focuses on the inner life and human relationships of um, of a person of the of the main um, character um, of the book and all of the stuff that's going on um, around like the 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 wacky uh, culture and the the shitty labor and the the weird technology like all this stuff that's going on is the 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 kind of the material conditions that your protagonist uh, exist within but it is almost like this thing that's that you comment on it without having to directly comment on it in a lot of ways. And, and I think that's actually a lot more powerful um, way to, to, to humanize um, these things rather than to, as I said, like write a heavy handed essay about, about them. You, you kind of let them speak for themselves, but I'll, I'll quit speaking uh, for myself and let you speak for yourself now. <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm so grateful that that came through because this was one of the things I was thinking about while writing it is how I live my life, my relatively ordinary life. And if Elon Musk does something stupid, it can impact my ordinary life. You know, all of a sudden I can't as easily connect my friends through social media as I was used to. And and I, I wanted to to make that that contrast clear of how they have an impact on the world these silicon valley billionaires and and we feel it sometimes in in our actual lives we we can we can be impacted by by their presence and and it was why i really felt it was crucial to show someone who is uh a kind of a, a worker who would have the least power in these situations but is as essential as it is essentially needed to make this technology work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, none of this is spoiler because there, there are some spoilers that we are careful not to spoil. But I, I think as well, one of the things that the book does really well, and, you know, I will say like, as I was reading it, I was like, almost half expecting this to happen, although it would not fit with the tone of the book. And I'm glad it didn't happen because it doesn't fit with the tone of the book, which is to say that like, there is at no point does your, um, like very ordinary, 
character, Teresa is her name. At no point does Teresa, this very ordinary person who is like many other people, most other people, just trying to make ends meet, going from temp job to temp job, precarious living situation to precarious living situation, moving back in with her mother when she's, you know, middle age um, because it has no other options, right? Like, you know, at no point does this person who is extraordinarily ordinary um, in every way, at no point do they become extraordinary. Do they be do something extraordinary? At no point does this novel become Dave Eggers' The Circle, right? Where it's like, you know, Teresa has, has infiltrated all over, which is your like kind of mega tech company that's a combo of like Google, Meta, and Amazon. You know, it's like, it's the super app of all super apps kind of company. Um, but at no point does Teresa like infiltrate all over and like you know meet its uh it, it's it's absurd founder uh wise uh, Fal- <laughs> <laughs> falconer gidry or whatever right like and you you've also done extremely well coming up with the stupidest most absurd but a believable like millennial tech executive names um, named after like things like Vermont or Falconer um, <laughs> instead of having names. Um, but at no point does Teresa like infiltrate all over and like have this like face, this grand face to face meeting where, you know, the, the CEO has his monologue about like, um, how he's saving the world. And Teresa's like, no, you don't understand like what it means to be a real person. Like at no point does any of that happen because that shit doesn't actually happen in real life, you know? Um, and so I actually think it makes the book all the better because at no point does it turn into a um, Ready Player One, The Circle, et cetera, et cetera, like unbelievable hero's journey uh, kind of story. It really stays true and to its own integrity as a story about an ordinary person living in conditions um, that are often not of their own making. Yeah, that that was definitely something I aimed for because I I just uh, one thing I, I was I had to explain to my publisher a few times is that this character is not a Silicon Valley worker, as in working at Lyft HQ. It, she would be more like a Lyft driver, and there's a huge difference. And one of them would be that a Silicon Valley worker might be a millennial Generation Z. Uh, Lyft drivers tend to be in their 40s or 50s, 60s, they tend to be older. And uh, that, that, was, that was something I thought a lot about. And uh, she just, she isn't management. I think a lot of the times we have these stories of, of the good manager versus the bad CEO. And to have this character who is ordinary, and I, I certainly wanted to present her as ordinary, and, and ordinary to me also means intelligent and interested in art, someone who goes to the museum, goes to a, a film at a repertory screening, you know, it, it, that's still an ordinary person living an ordinary life. And I, I wasn't seeing that in fiction. I was seeing overachievers overachieving themselves to goodness or whatever, I, like a feminist billionaire or something like that. I, I, I just, I, I, I was really frustrated with the kind of fiction about work, fiction about technology, 
fiction in general, which, which, you know, speaking broadly, fiction right now is, when it comes to characterization, tends to be quite weak. There is a, a real sort of uh, trend right now to create these characters who are uh, just rude and they're unlikable, but it's to me, they're just like rude. And I, I don't, and if, if they're rude and interesting, that's one thing, but if they're rude and just that's it, I, I, I'm not really on board with that. So I just, I wanted to create someone who is, who, who you can see the limits of her understanding. She's not someone who read Marx when she was 18. She doesn't have like a theory of class but at the same time, she's she's had enough experiences up to where she is when we meet her at the age of 48. She's had enough experiences to understand what isn't available to her. And if she does express ambition, that this is going to like, she's going to fall flat on her face because this culture really, it, you, you get lottery opportunities and the lottery winners will validate this as a fair system. But for most of us, it, it's just not worth worth it to even bother because it's rigged i especially when it comes to silicon valley novels does the characterization rely so much on managers on wonderkind on um you know these sort of weird remixes of the hero's journey do you, is it partially a reflection of that myth because you know i was even thinking like on my shelf right now is not just the circle but the every which continues this sort of Wonder Kid thing where you have a worker infiltrating the organization to destroy it. You know, a fifth columnist Silicon Valley worker um, that bypasses like an emotional effective response test and a bunch of weird personal uh, intelligence uh, tests and interviews to like weed out people um, who might have subversive tendencies. Right. So it's like, yeah, you know, even in the novels that are supposed, or even in a lot of the novels that are supposed to be subversive, there's still this reliance on like the uh, exceptional character um, who comes in like a like an uh, like a ghost in the machine um, to like save the day. You know, from from the things that things that capitalists have wrought on us. And I'm and I'm wondering, you know, one yeah, like one. When did you start noticing that or think about that? And like how early on in the writing process did you decide that you were going to subvert that and abandon that sort of tropus and explore these? Yeah, I think that as gifted kid lit, like it's just those tweets about, <laughs> oh, I was gifted. And so I, I'm always going to be sad or, you know, just. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, okay, congratulations. Your tweets are bad. If you're so gifted, why don't you just uh, tweet? better things. I, I don't, that's, that's me. <laughs> Meanwhile, well, I had learning disabilities, mm -hmm. so I'm going to write about <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> I just, I, I, it's never like that. That is one of those things that, um, you know, I, oh, writing this book, I, I have a real sense of responsibility to write a, a book that is worthy of people's time and attention to write something to my standards to to bring to do something visceral and meaningful but i don't really care if people think i'm smart or not that's just never been my thing i when i was applying to colleges i, I really didn't care that much where i got in i was a c student i had learning disabilities 
if people want to believe I'm an idiot because of that, they're welcome to, but I feel like my body of work speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I would, uh, I would 100% uh, uh, agree. I mean, I, I, I think the, the, idea of this is like gifted kids lit is, is, is very interesting because it is like, that is, that is the, you know, those are the heroes of, of today, right? It's the, it's the wonderkins. It's the, the reluctant nobility, you know, they're the, with yeah. the aristocratic virtue locked inside of them. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the ones who really grace us with their noblesse oblige is, you know, the people who are like, well, I'm going to use my giftedness for good, you know, instead of uh, that. What, what is it? The, oh, I, f- I forget who said it. Right. But that quote that like, you know, the, the, the most, you know, gifted people of my generation are making people click on ads or whatever. Right. The, but, but like one, I mean, like, a, a big fucking like self, a, a, a very <laughs> masturbatory comment, right? To be like, me and all of my friends are the most like brilliant. Social, I think a social network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, like me and all my friends are the most brilliant people of this generation. Um, and you know, like woe is me that we're we're making people click on ads. Like, you know, the the uh, whereas like. I don't know. I guess if you're gifted for good, you join one of these companies and tear it down from the inside. But like, I think all of that is extraordinarily, uh, boring, right? It's like, it's a, it's a profoundly boring and unrealistic, um, kind of idea because it's all based in like this real, um, deep egoism, right? That like, like I am so good that I can either be like, uh, I can either have the potential for the greatest evil or the greatest good because I'm so gifted. Oh, well, well, I was just reminded that there was a profile of, um, uh, now my name, I'm blanking on her name, Marissa from, from Google, then Yahoo. Um, it's going to come to me, but there's a profile of her from the aughts. I think it would have been like 2008 or so. And she was reviewing people's SAT school scores. So this, she's like reviewing applicants to Google who might be in their thirties or forties, you know, at least like 26, 27. And she's looking at their SAT scores. It's just like, what, Ridiculous. what kind of <laughs> salon atmosphere uh, of intellectualism is happening there? If you are looking at, if you're reviewing people's SAT scores yeah. who are adults, yeah. it's just ridiculous. Like that's the thing. It's just like uh, it's not it's not intellectual. It's overachiever. It's uh, it's check it's checking the boxes of what someone else wants of you, and that I I feel like we do need more of a, a culture of refusal, which could begin with saying, uh, "I would never want to work at Facebook, not just now, but." back in 2004 because they're all weenies i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah marissa meyer and, marissa and meyer. Uh, that that's i mean a lot of that is also very much tied to the like you know these iq tests right like you know it's like put having a test and you know some kind of objective instrument uh, a test that you can put a number to to them because then it makes it really easy to do things like stack rank people right if you have a number then it's like really easy to stack rank people have thresholds um for 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 brilliance you know like you know you've got a genius iq because it's over 150 or whatever it is right like all of this kind of bullshit um and again i think like there is this 
I don't know, this obsession with these people, right? For for good and for bad. Either you want to be them or you want to destroy them, but either way, you're like really obsessed with them, right? And I think it like, it speaks to this focus on, um, you know, writing these like kind of fantastical novels like The Every or The Circle that are kind of like trying to... Uh, channel some kind of like cu- like cultural zeitgeist o- about like our perceptions of the tech sector, right? Like the circle is very much coming out in 2013, where everyone's like, "Wow, these technology companies are are real are are really powerful." You know, they they seem to have a lot of power here, and so so it's like, you know, could they do something like dark? Could do they have a dark side? I have one thing to say about this circle is which I never actually finished, but I did start it as an audiobook, and I heard the first line, uh, the first two lines, and I was just blown away. I was like, "Wow, I didn't know Dave Eggers could write like that. That is a beautiful way to begin the book." And I paused, and I just like paused on those two lines. Then I pressed play again. It was like a quote from John Steinbeck. <laughs> <laughs> The rest of the novel, uh, well, I I don't need to say, but but it it, it did not live up to those uh, to the, to the, to the style. That's that's excellent. That's excellent. Um, but yeah, so it's like you know, 2013. It's like could these could these companies have a dark side? And you know, like you know, we'll we'll we'll, we'll chronicle this potential dark side through the the eyes of a tech worker who joins the company, and then what? Like fast forward. You know, to 2022 is when the the every comes out. No, 2021 is when the every comes out, and it you know it tells the story of, of of yet another young woman who joins you know an all powerful company, um, who was the you know created out of a merger between the circle and the jungle, right, to create a super company, um, and you know our protagonist from. Uh, you know, our, our protagonist from the circle has actually become the CEO of this like merger mega company, right? And so, like, you know, it, again, it's like it's very boring, right? It's all very boring. It's just writing. It's trying to write the zeitgeist, but it's doing so in a way that is uh, like very surface level. I, I did not expect this to be like a Dave Eggers uh, like beat down fest, but you know, it's always good. To, it's always good to have a foil, um, and I think yeah. I, I think your book mm-hmm. actually does serve very well as a foil here um, because it is. Really try it's 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 understanding this company, you know, all over in your novel without actually focusing on the company in any real serious way. You you kind of get these like snippets of this like this weird uh like cult uh ideology, the the what is it, the 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 the, the holistic apex is that yeah, so you've come up with this like ex- like this weird cult ideology of the holistic apex that underlies all over's philosophy. It's like the title of this best-selling book that the CEO has put out. But you only give us these little snippets of like all over as a company. Like what does it do? What's its kind of like reach, its power, like what's its ideology, its people? Because you're giving us the view of a company through the eyes of some of a normal person who would be like 
working for the company, not as a software engineer, not as a director uh, level or manager or a, a, a go-getter quickly exceeding through the ranks. Um, no, like through through one of the the. F- the, the faceless millions who make the company actually run like literally on the ground level um, here. And, and like, and that is the view that the most, that the majority of people ha- have of these companies yeah. who are not people like us who like professionally read the news uh, about them. Right. Like most people do not professionally read the news um, uh, about, about anything, let alone tech companies. They just get it through little, little snippets here and there, little, little, uh, Bits, you know, segments on TV or or seeing it in the uh, a bookshop, you know, seeing the big display for this new, um, you know, new nonfiction book from a tech CEO or whatever it might be. You and and then and then you just get a job there, not because you're like I want to go work for all over, but because you answered a, uh, an ad from a temp agency saying drivers wanted, and then you go get a job and you go to the training, and it turns out that you're being employed through a temp agency to work for all over right which is like that's that's the vast majority of people's like interactions with these with these companies that as we've been talking about these companies that do actually really dominate and structure like the material conditions the conditions of social reproduction as we've been talking about in our book club on Soren Mao's book Mute Compulsion like you know these these companies that structure people's lives in profound ways like for most people they their their understanding of them do come through these little like kind of sideways glances oh yeah that was definitely something i was thinking about and especially because i have it set in boston which is a a community of like it's an area that is not very trusting of people and quite closed off to outsiders so this idea that it could kind of like drop in and force its way in i mean i i like an example I think of as how someone um, first encounters these technologies. I mean, I was just thinking about like, I, I observed my, my father uh, about a year ago, he had uh, a company come fix his roof. A, a bunch of people showed up and they were all helping. It seemed to be a family and he was thrilled. They did an amazing job. And the, the manager of that uh roofing company said to him, you know, if you leave a Yelp review or a Google review or a Facebook review, we'll buy the whole team sandwiches. And my, I, I, I listened to my dad on the phone. He's like, oh, well, I, I don't really use Facebook or Google. I'm, I'm not really, I, I, I don't really do that. And he still, and then, you know, he, he took a, he, he got off the phone and he really wanted to give this, this, this uh, team their sandwiches so he signed up for a google account he really did not want to and i i mean he knows enough about technology as an ipad but it was just such something interesting to me that this was like last year 2022 my father has somehow lived as long as he had without google but just one little interaction you want to get sandwiches for the people who fixed your roof there, there it goes. He, he leaves a review on Google, and I, I don't think he logged into that account again. But it's just that these companies force their way into your life eventually, and it is something as simple as as a, a interaction between people. And as cynical as we might be about um, 
the products and their usefulness, they still have that scale. And it, it, that, that's the thing we have to grapple with is that scale and the corrosive power of that scale in, in our intimate lives. I'm, I'm, I'm curious also if you, if you think like as, you know, people try to grapple with that scale, I mean, and also with your experiences now having written in a book, a novel, having consumed science fiction and fiction, um, you know, having talked with people, especially, you know, in your internet history that you've, that you've written most of the work they've been doing for years. I mean, do you find that there are any particular framing or vehicles that do help people kind of grapple uh, with the reality of uh, of the world that these like you know firms and platforms are metastasizing, or that it's an it's a you know all at once approach that it's you know the books, both fiction and nonfiction, as well as you know writing, as well as speaking, as well as organizing, as well as life experiences that do it. I mean, are there any particular uh, devices or framing that you, that you you see finding the most purchase or success? You know. I think part of the reason this isn't a very traditional genre book, and I grew up reading science fiction. This was a big part of my life. And when I just start was getting started as a writer, I was, I was writing science fiction, real, proper science fiction. And by the time I wrote this novel, I, I was kind of frustrated with the genre. And I, I feel like if there's one thing that I would really love is the energy of the new wave era if we could, if we could have something like that today, that we could have that that culture of um, of experimentation and refusal of the old way of doing things, and and to just kind of explain what the new wave was, it would have been writers like Samuel Delaney, J.T. Ballard, and Michael Moorcock, Joanna Russ, Ursula Le Guin. It was this moment in the '60s and '70s where they were experimenting with. Uh, providing a lot of radical political ideas. I mean, part of this this moment came when there was a petition um, where they got an, a bunch of sci-fi writers to to write sign a petition about how the, how they're they were against the Vietnam War and there were still many other science fiction writers who did not sign that petition. Uh, so you had this this radical politics uh, exper- uh queerness and feminism and uh, experimentation in the form where the genre itself was experimented with. So the boundary between literary um, or experimental kind of Burroughs kind of stuff and sci-fi itself, that, that was happening in this era. And right now I would like, I'm actively trying to uh, bring uh, that spirit back to genre because I am so sick of Marvel storytelling in a novel presented as genre fiction when we do have this rich history um, that that isn't as present in the contemporary work as we see. Um, but that that's that's what I, I hope um, what what I'm doing with my work now and why I am kind of even though this is a book that's not fully set in the in the uh, future it's and it is the near future it's just on the verge of literary I am pretty intentional about claiming my sci-fi uh, in- influences because that is what I came up reading and that work um, we need that right now and in, in another moment of kind of 
you know, bureaucrats from Facebook writing their own kind of science fiction histories about, you know, those good kids that just expose evil, but then a, a friendlier company, a friendlier billionaires show up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't read those yeah. books. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's that's actually really really right though because one of the things that i was I, I like that you you are making this connection between like a kind of a, a literary novel and the kind of sci-fi genre right like and, and i think the book very much sits it's a literary novel that sits within a a, a somewhat sci-fi setting in, in a lot of ways right like um it's much more like alternative present than even like near future um, in a, in a lot of ways. But um, one of the books I kept thinking of when I was reading your novel uh, is uh, and comparing it to favorably, it was reminding me of um, Teju Cole's open city, which is one of my favorite novels of all time. And it is a novel uh, is a novel with amazing characterization, but is also a, a something of a novel about nothing in a lot of ways, right? It's about um, the, the main characters uh, just kind of, daily walks through New York City like it's a novel that's all, that has a very kind of diary uh feeling to it it's a novel that has this kind of um it, it really captures like New York's like the kind of the the flow and setting of New York City and it, it kind of has this like somewhat stream of consciousness aspect to it um but it is it is an extraordinarily like beautiful and and literary novel that is saying stuff but without really trying to say anything in like a big hand like heavy-handed way right and so like i kept thinking about open city while reading wrong way in a lot of ways as well because like you give us so much characterization and a very kind of diary um, perspective of Teresa's life, um, not just now, but, you know, in the present day, but kind of cutting to these like vignettes um, in, in her, uh, in her life and her, in her past. And so these things that like, would have no place in a sci-fi novel that was like trying to be really like like consistent and focused on like this is a sci-fi genre everything needs to be sci-fi everything needs to be in service of the sci-fi um like no you have like these like large swaths of the novel that are just literary um but but not just literary like they are really important um for doing what you want to do which is to uh really draw out what literary what a what a book like open city does really well which is to be a human story um and, you know at the at the end of the day and and I, I liked it in large part as well going on everything that we're talking about because like i don't need more stories that try to make me sympathize or empathize with like startup founders or gifted kids or whatever, right? Like I don't need more novels or works of fiction or, or works of creative nonfiction or profiles in the New Yorker or whatever. I don't need any more of that stuff that is like trying to humanize um, these people who are like so far out of uh, like so far um, in a different class than everybody else in terms of their power and wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't need any more of that. But, like, I think your book 
does actually allow us to really like like empathize and sympathize with somebody who is just a normal person um like like most other people yeah that 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 is what i i i mean what i try to do with my writing always is recognize that all of us have very busy days most of my readers i imagine are not billionaires of leisure. They're working people who have a lot of um, demands on their time. And I'm not going to write a, I'm not going to write something intentionally shitty or something that's just like a f- ego trip for me. I, I want to make sure that, that someone is, is getting an experience that, that, you know, maybe they, if it's not right for them, well, whatever, but I, I hope someone will, who goes, follows me on the journey is going to get something out of that. And that's um, what I, what I aim for in, in this book. And, and I, I also feel like it, being obvious is, is part of that disappointment that someone can feel reading something like who doesn't know that Uber is a bad company who doesn't basically know that the Facebook is bad, maybe not understand the, the nitty gritty why, but most people know that Facebook is bad or unless they work there and they've kind of wrapped their minds around another, another way of thinking um, or have like Facebook shares or something. I, I, well, I mean, I don't need to state the obvious here. I need to more uh, create some connections and when those connections coming through in those, in those scenes from the past, the, the Teresa's past I want to make is show people you're, you likely have had work experiences like gig economy type jobs too. You have likely been, especially if you're a working class person, you've probably been in circumstances where you have had a view on customers or a view on, on, on somebody that, that you're working for. And that, that the discomfort of, of that sort of work environment, the, the exploitation of of even if you even if you are invisible, you can still feel like uh, you, you can s- still feel like you, your emotional labor is 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 part of part of the job. There's a lot to connect with uh, in in this in this book as well. I mean, to the point where um, <laughs> reading it, like parts, I, I also kept having this thought of like, I wonder how much of this is autobiographical or like, like thinly veiled autobiographical, just because like, there were so many details, um, so many little like, like interactions or emotions or, or situations that feel like if you created them out of your mind, I mean, kudos for you to be able to do that, that they felt so real um, and so real in a way that's like, mon- like, like mundane, um, but, but meaningful. That was like, I was like, how much I kept thinking, I was like, how much are, am I reading about Joanne right now? You're actually the first to, to ask me this, which I'm surprised more people haven't, because I, I will say that something that, uh, I, I've kind of, over the years of writing fiction, kind of developed as a skill is kind of taking emotions that I've felt and putting them in another situation. So a lot of, like, there are a few little jobs that, that are similar to jobs that I've had, but I was, in a lot of those situations, especially the longer passages, I was thinking of a work environment that where I had felt 
kind of either betrayed by somebody or I felt like I was being scapegoated or I, I was very strong emotions that I felt in a workplace and taking those emotions and giving them to this character in a totally different scenario of, of other characters and work environment. But I was very uh, conscious of, I mean, I was brainstorming constantly while I wrote this about like jobs I've had, jobs my mother has had, jobs my friends have had. What um, what workplaces have I been present in? What do I know that no one else would necessarily know? And um, jobs that I've interviewed for. I mean, they, even just in an interview, you you your takeaway of who works in this in this building and how much power do they have? It, it all ended up being really useful to me in the end for this book. I think that emotional transference definitely worked really well in the in the novel. Is this a novel that lives alone in its own universe? Um, you know, would there be other stories that you'd be interested in, you know, not to not in the Marvel sense, but maybe more so in just like the type of um world that's been built out here? Cuz I I I ask that mainly cuz I'm just thinking about how it stands in in opposition to uh, our friend uh, Dave Edgar's, um, and you know how he his attempt to scale up the world, and each attempt to scale up the world kind of being unsatisfying. But I'm um, yeah, I'm curious. Like, what other sort of stories would you think about or have thought about writing in this world? Especially because you said you've written fiction before, or in the in 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 the in the world. I mean, like also just like in your fic- in any fictional universe. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I've I've found is as soon as I finish a book, I really want to like use a different part of my brain or something like that. So I I I started this book basically the day after, just a few days after I I finished Lurking. I just was like, I got to do something completely different, and even if it's even if I can't go the full way with it, just like try something entirely new. And I have kind of moved on to another fiction project, but I will say that it's like it is probably still in that literary to boundaries of genre space, but it's just like structurally completely different. I would, I would almost say like defensively different that I'm, I'm just like where I, 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 you know, a few things that are not present in this book that I, I just didn't need to include. I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm really going to have a book that, that has that here. So, that, that, but who knows whether I'll finish this book? Who knows? I, it, it's just kind of, I, I appreciate, I, I mean, as a writer, it's, it, I get inspired when I feel like I'm challenging. Um, I mean, that, now that now I sound like a gifted kid. No, I, I, I don't mean to like, <laughs> I mean, it's really just like the joy of writing a book, though, is, uh, is, legitimately your ambition because you have this space that you don't have a boss in this space of the book that you're writing. No one is your boss. No one can see it for a very long time. They're not going to see it. So you lay out this kind of this game and then you have to solve it. And it's so it, it playing, if you're writing the same book again, or a very similar kind of book, you already know how to solve it. So I think that that's like the difference for me. Um, and why I, I, I'm really tempted toward something very different for the next book. 
Well, I definitely would be interested to see your take on other concepts. I mean, we're, we're like 45 minutes in and I, I've neglected to even mention that like, um, <laughs> this is, and, and you confirmed it before we were recording. So this is, this is not a purely egoistic assumption here, but this is very much like Potemkin AI, the novel. Um, and, and a lot of like, it, it takes that idea of like Potemkin AI or like Astra Taylor's, um, Faldimation. Um, it, it takes those to their like most like logical uh absurdity their most logical extreme um and and so i thought it was just like like such an interesting treatment of a concept that like i mean i I, it, it always it always makes me so um like I don't know, just, just, just tickled. It makes me so tickled to, to remember that, like, uh, me and Astra came up with our concepts of Potemkin AI and Photomation independently of each other. And our essays on those concepts were published in the same week. Um, hers in Logic and mine in Real Life Magazine. And the same week in 2018, both of our essays came out. And Astra and I had known each other and had co- like published together um, for years, like previous to that. But we had like independently developed um, these ideas and independently written essays about them in like the two biggest like independent uh, tech and society magazines. And then they were published in the same week. So it was like this real synchronicity of like and then and then at the same time like you know um uh mary gray and siddharth Suri were writing ghost work in their book and obviously books take a lot longer but you know they were developing those ideas at the same time and their book came out um like in you know in the following year from from our essay so like it was a real like synchronicity of like an idea whose time had finally come right like we like there like this concept uh, like we didn't, we didn't, we weren't like pinning, like like naming something that hadn't existed. We were like, this is something that exists and it needs a name. Um, and 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 since then, it has only become like more mainstream recognition that like like oh yeah, these a quote unquote AI or quote unquote automated technologies are actually just like people in disguise. Um, and and I absolutely love the way you taken those concepts and pushed them um in in the novel in like really interesting and 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 uh, original ways as well so i mean that's that's the teaser there for people as well we're not giving a ton of detail about the book because i don't want to spoil so much of the narrative but it is it is potemkin ai the novel in a lot of ways well the funny thing is i i started this book in 2018 like summer of 2018 i don't know if that was like about the same time I I that's when I started the book was summer of 2018 and I um and the, what inspired me was I had one of the jobs that definitely inspired this book that I've had I've I've been as I'm someone who has had many many jobs most of them very bad jobs um and one of those jobs I had was I, I worked in a call center and I could only read lines off a screen and this was about, this was 2009. And I just remember feeling like you could just replace me with a robot. I'm, I'm basically just, or I'm basically here to be replaced by automation. And it, it was such a, it was such a deadening experience. And it was, it's a job that was probably in terms of 
I've had like worse jobs on paper, but there was something kind of particularly meaningless about this job that really, you know, crushed my spirits while I had it. And it had, by the time I, I worked on this book, it had been almost 10 years since I had that job. And I, I, I really could reflect on how it made me alienated from my friends, how it, how it impacted my life. And so that, that's what went into this book. I mean, more synchronicity here. So our, uh, our uh, essays, um, Potemkin AI and Fathomation, those essays came out in the first week of August. No way. Um, so summer <laughs> of 2018 as well. So that the, the, the summer of 2018, that, that's, that, that there was something in the, in the, in the zeitgeist <laughs> there for Absolutely. sure. Um, and the, the fact that it came out of like inspired by working at a call center, I think is also extremely important and relevant here. I remember in like, you know, in 2020, you know, like, you know, early and, and peak, you know, peak pandemic and everything is all about like working from home and stuff like that. And there was all this, you know, I was constantly getting calls from journalists who wanted to talk to me about like working from home technologies and surveillance and stuff like that. And because this is the first time that a lot of white collar workers had to face up to like these kinds of surveillance suites that are like mon- like hyper monitoring everything that you're doing on your computer. And I kept telling people, I was like, this is not new. This is the call center coming to your home, right? Like this is the kind of stuff that call center employees had been on the, the vanguard of in terms of the, the receiving end um, for so, so long, but it was invisible to every Everybody else who had the um, the autonomy and agency of having a, a professional white collar job, like you know, also working on the computer, but working on the computer without um, having software uh, be an automated boss uh, and 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 all seeing eye. Um, and so it was like really again, like the call center uh, looms large, I think, in our his- in our futures of technology. Like, you know, to understand the future of technology, you could do a lot worse than going and getting a job at a call center. Yeah, I mean, you if nothing else, you will meet some interesting people. I mean, I only had about two minutes during my workday that I could actually talk to them, but I remember feeling like, Ah, this is where everyone in Greater Boston who didn't have anywhere better to go landed. <laughs> Are there? Have you ever thought about taking up jobs to kind of write about different or pursue different, you know, perspectives in writing, or is the emotional transference that we've been kind of talking about? A, like sure and tried method for you, you know, I like, cause I know that there is also some writing that your book reminds me of specifically. Um, I'm going to forget the name. It's a German book from a seasonal worker. Um, um, at Amazon. And she oh, kind that of was like, seasonal associate. Yeah. 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 And there was, and you know, the one that was a text in this sort of genre of we are not going to be writing about Silicon Valley Wonder Kid. We're going to write about the human and and how they are being kind of massaged, shaped, ground up by uh, jobs that are uh, they they they're working and 
you know, I know she didn't take the job to write it, but wrote it after the job. But I'm always been curious about the extent to which, you know, people do this for reporting, but for fiction, I, me personally, I just don't know a lot about the extent to which people might take up sort of jobs to try and turn them into experiences. Uh, you know, except- I would actually, it, the reason I'd push back on that a little bit is that you still, you, you can be an outsider only so much. And I would say that like, the reason that the the call center job I, I have, there, there were a few things that I took from that experience that I, I think someone who might have been just like, uh, not parachute journalist, but, but like an under, take it as an undercover job is like, I grew up working class. I have like a sense of the expectations or lack of expectations or, um, and that this community might, might have. And, I mean, something that I, I'm not sure how unique this is to Boston, but it, it's something I definitely remember growing up with is like the expression of ambition is greed. And it's sometimes read as just like, okay, you want to go to Harvard because you're greedy. And it's so y- there, I can look at it as like, okay, you're playing the lottery, but then someone else might see it as like, y- you just, you think you're better than us. And they, that really is often the motivation. It's like you want, you believe you are better and you deserve a spot in the ruling class, which that's like the social mobility aspects. Uh, I, I thought it was very important to show kind of like a, a more dismal view on social mobility and like who, you know, even if you try, it, it's not that easy to, to get up there unless you might be a little bit more cutthroat than others. Um, no, I don't, I don't mean to yeah. say like, I don't think that, that shouldn't be done or that, you know, undercover jobs aren't, I, I, I mean, like I literally, like, I, I think I just don't know of it beyond the typical reporting. And I am, I actually, I think that should be done more. Right. Because I do think, especially in the course of our conversation, as we've been talking about how so much of the literature is centered around this, like, uh, Ubermensch saving the day or this exceptionalist frame of mind that i I'm just like also interested in like what kind of other, you know, jobs or experiences might be helpful that may, or others, you know, should pursue not from a, of course, you know, and as you said, because, you know, it makes sense because you come from a working class background and I'm, but I'm thinking of it and like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about other ways in which we can get people to kind of break through the, the stranglehold, this very specific narrative of, you know, a chosen one, but in tech, you know, yeah. a chosen one, but in gift in the G and T and magnet programs or chosen one, but like in Silicon Valley. My inclination is just that we need a broader cross class coalition on the left and like in leftist intellectual yeah. communities, which I do not feel like when I go to yeah. uh, a parties of leftists in New York city, which I, I definitely do have, have a way to go to those parties. I'm often stunned by how few people I meet who like me went to state schools, who like me grew up working class and the assumptions made in those spaces about people from these communities that, that they're so stupid. You need to talk over them as opposed to that, you know, probably these publications would be a lot stronger if they found a way to, to stop alienating uh, the working class that they're allegedly speaking for. 
Let me know when next time you're in New York. I meet my friends. Me, one of the things <laughs> and the benefits of having come to New York, I think years in, was like getting to go to some of those parties and be like, Jesus fucking. <laughs> oh, can I plug my New York event? Actually, can I plug my New York event? Yes. I, yeah. I am going to be speaking at Wonderville, a really cool kind of arcade mm-hmm. art space in Bushwick on December 4th. So if this airs Amazing. before December 4th, please come out. I would love to see you. I'll be talking about the book and oh, yeah, I'm I'll be there. always happy to meet. I'm happy you'll be there. I'm always happy to meet anybody in this community I, I i'm excited to be back in new york for the first time this year yeah <laughs> i mean i grew up as one of those people where i went straight into the workforce and i for the most part of always my politics have always like stayed left but it was mostly just because i grew up around a bunch of punks and they were into like crass and communism and anarchism you know that was the influence that i had through that and like you know, you're talking about the seasonal worker. I mean, I've taken jobs just to learn skills because I didn't want to have to pay to do it. Like I took, I took a job at a Subaru dealership to learn how to do maintenance on my car and then promptly quit when I figure out everything I need to do to save money. And it wasn't done just like, you know, I didn't like, I'm going to write a book about this. I did this because I was tired of spending $120 on oil changes. So I figured if I learn how to do it myself and have them pay me 15 bucks an hour to do it, uh, it was the best, best thing I could possibly do for myself. I recommend that people do stuff like that. Like if you have the ability to take a second job that is a skill that you want to learn and you don't want to go to school for, have them pay you to do it. When you feel competent enough, just leave it and go find something else. Yeah. They're not loyal to you. So I mean, <laughs> why not just. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and trust me, every, every job I take, I I'm always in there just like, you know, these motherfuckers here don't care about you. You're just like another tally on like their spreadsheets. But as a gifted kid, burnout, <laughs> I never once flirted with libertarianism. Oh, well, you got that one over me. Now comes the superiority <laughs> complex all along, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's actually a really great segue to something we can end the episode with, which is the, the shocking reveal that Joanne has promised. Um, promised us uh, <laughs> when we were planning this episode, but <laughs> there, there, there are many ways, right? You can go get a job at like a Subaru dealership and learn skills, like you know, oil changes. Go get a job at a you know, as a line cook at a, a short order restaurant, you know, to 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 learn how to do some cooking at home, right? You can go get jobs and learn skills. The you can also do very similar things intellectually um, by uh, go 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 spend you know your wayward youth as a uh, you know as a libertarian for example go to george mason university and, <laughs> and 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 learn libertarianism from the gods of libertarianism themselves and then walk away knowing knowing that shit better than than most critics because you were really dyed in the wool and then and then you come to uh, come to, to, to reality later. You know, once you get mugged by reality, then you, you realize how things actually work. <laughs> oh yeah. I was but, mugged by reality. That is, uh, that is a great way of putting my, um, my deprogramming from libertarianism, which I got mixed <laughs> up with as a youth and, uh, brought me to study economics at George Mason university. Mind you, I, this was like, 
one of two schools I got into because I, I was a terrible student. I I don't even remember what the other school was that I got into. Um, and I just knew because I had a, a, a relative who's libertarian, which is to say Republican now, uh, who was devoted to Walter Williams columns. And it's like, oh, there are two Nobel laureates in economics at George Mason University. You've got to study economics. So I'm like, okay, well, this is the school that I got into. I'll, I'll study the, the thing they're known for. I, I, I really don't care. I just know I need a BA. And the, the miraculous thing is that I realized that I just, so long as I, learned um the the lingo like oh the the free market spontaneous order local knowledge if i so long as i learned libertarian principles and recited them in essays i was no longer a c student i was an a student (laughs) i just kept like i would just like write my papers 10 minutes before they were due and just like absolute free market nonsense and get A's and mind you there were maybe two other women in the program along with me and I know that they really you know oh they they were gentlemen of course like <laughs> they really wanted women in libertarianism <laughs> there, there's so many ironies here I mean there's one there's the irony of affirmative action for gender equity that's George Mason University is woke you hear that you heard it here <laughs> first though, <laughs> the economics department at GMU is woke um, they, they they let in women and gave them A's just for being there. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, I can make fun of it because I, I definitely was not an involved student at all. I just, I, I've never, I, you know, I've always been a really thorough reader. I've always been really curious when it comes to schoolwork. I just, I have trouble paying attention in class, all that kind of stuff. But I was immersed in libertarianism and I came to believe in it. At least it, 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 it seemed to make sense in my uh, teenage to early twenties minds and the things that I felt strongly about, you know, like uh, <laughs> again, like basic things like uh, abortion legalizing or decriminalizing sex work and drugs and all of those things I'm like okay well that's that's good and the surveillance state is bad uh and anarchy is good uh anarchy state and utopia seems like pretty good book <laughs> and i got yeah and I, I got an internship at the cato institute so i was in the the actual glass tower building that's the funny thing and this is a big reveal is that's how i got my start in technology because i was assigned to the tech department as an intern to be the intern for tech and this was around the time of the ria nonsense about uh copyright going like really uh, the RIA was like suing grandmothers for file sharing and it, and this was a time that uh tech group at at Cato Institute was was doing reasonably worthwhile policy like uh, uh about why the patriot act is bad that kind of thing i and uh i i just didn't have anything in, 
front of me to challenge, like to challenge these ideas. I was still kind of, um, I, I don't, I don't know how to, how to put it, but like, I, these, these had by this point become my friends and my community. And there was still, a what seemed to be some progressivism in this space that there, I was meeting a lot of queer people. I was meeting a lot of, uh, actually a lot of, a lot of people of color, um, and it through the Cato Institute. Um, and, uh, but then I got mugged by reality. As you said, I, I didn't get these opportunities to be a sort of like, I didn't realize that they were training me to be kind of a, a commentator on CNN to show up and mm-hmm. be like, well, this is why regulations are bad. Or, like, this is why we need to privatize uh, the roads. I mean, like that's, that's basically what I was in training through Cato and GMU and everything to be. And I, I thought to myself, well, I wouldn't mind being an intellectual who writes policy papers, writes op-eds for the New York Times. So that's better than, working as a waitress i i I don't Mm. really know and a funny thing enough is i i just didn't get some some of these opportunities that they have that would be like the coke fellowship the real like the real super elites among the libertarian the community of 50 libertarians of my generation i didn't i didn't get them so i i at some point my in my journey i i i wasn't I wasn't a professional libertarian. Um, I think if I went to law school, they probably would have found an opportunity for me. But uh, I left DC because I was already feeling DC. Something about living in DC felt unpleasant, and I I didn't fully understand what I didn't like about DC. Just that I knew I had to get out of there. I moved to Chicago. I met a lot of artists. I I wouldn't say that I had like a a political life in Chicago, but I was able to distance my identity from these politics that I was never fully committed it to, but but could see opportunities for me. And by that point, seeing for myself how hard it is to get any job, um, trying really hard to get a job as a receptionist and then seeing how I was treated in a work environment as a receptionist, trying to make rent on my wages as a receptionist. Those were the experiences that, that definitely that radicalized me the right way. And, and here I am now on your podcast, mm. <laughs> a good anarchist. <laughs> I hope. I mean, it's just like <laughs> that's right. That's right. You you got good company with Ed, <laughs> but you know, you, hey, it it's it's you're not alone. And it's not it's it's not actually as I I think it's not as uncommon of a a, a pathway as it might as it might feel like as well because that that is the the libertarian snake oil is like perf is like specifically engineered to target like the not yet fully formed uh brains or fully formed like experiences and maturity of like young like eight like you know uh 
teenagers and early 20s, right? Like they give you this sense of community and, and acceptance and that you have a spot here. You're welcome here. You can do something. There's other people doing things and you get mentorship, right? Like all the things that you crave um, and, and their logic, like the logics of the arguments are really, really simplistic and childish. And so they're easily to grasp. It's easy to feel mastery over them. Um, and it's easy to feel a kind of universal expertise that like you have through these concepts, you can understand and comment on anything in the world, right? Like, uh, hey, I know this firsthand because I I haven't talked about this in ages. I mean, very early in the podcast days, we've talked about it, but not a lot since. But like, you know, I was I also had a wayward youth as a as a young libertarian getting caught up in these things because you know I I in undergrad where with with these ideas because I was um like you know I I was going to college and I started out as a as a polymer chemistry major and then eventually changed my degree to philosophy <laughs> and I was in a philosophy department that had a ton of um like like libertarian philosophers anarcho capitalists you know um people who are like really big into like you know um nozick or lysander spooner and and all of these kinds of things right and so like so i got taught that um a lot and then kind of got sucked into it in this way where you're like you know there's no there's no one is like more susceptible to this than a like you know 20 year old 19 year old like philosophy student right who's like i'm trying to learn about the world and i'm being introduced to this like philosophy that gives me a total understanding of the world um and and then like and there is this big network you know we've talked about this a little bit actually with like quinn slobodian on crack with crack up capitalism and stuff like there's this huge network most of it like um, funded either explicitly or secretly by the Koch brothers. Um, but this huge network of, of community organizations and, and, and funders and think tanks and, you know, mentor programs and, and things that are designed to like suck you into the libertarian ecosystem at a very early age and have everything from your preschool to your postgraduate libertarian education kind of provided for you, you know? And so like, I, I remember, one of my summers in undergrad, I did a, a Institute for Humane Studies like summer school program, right? Where I went and like spent a month um, at you know living in the dorms in a in a university outside of Philadelphia and doing like you know seminars and workshops and lectures, but also tons of like. Um, drinking for free, you know, at, at every night, you know, with all the other undergrad students and all the other grads, you know, all the other grad students and all the other, you know, rock star libertarian professors who are there. And like, they really do a good job of sucking you into these kinds of things where you're like, yeah, I can see a place for me uh, in the, in this, in this world. And then I think the majority of people do actually, like, I, I don't know for sure, but I imagine their attrition rate is actually really quite high because like it does, it doesn't take long once you exit the ecosystem. And for me, it was going to grad school and being introduced to like, 
you know, like more in like, like a lot of theory um, and, and stuff like that. Right. Like, cause I, you know, I, I come from a, you know, Jeremy's already mentioned it, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm like the first person in our family to go to college. So I'm not coming from some like wealthy family where I was insulated from the realities of, 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 you know, material conditions or society or whatever. But like, you know, it, for me, it was like going to grad school and just reading other stuff that was not like the libertarian um, canon. And then like very quickly being like, oh, all that shit is like wrong and and stupid and I need to abandon it. Um, so I, I can imagine the attrition rate is really, really high once people leave the orbit um, of the of the libertarian ecosystem of of. Uh, but like people who get sucked into it and trapped there and stay there, like those, like they really, you know, they, they, they really do kind of have a whole life, um, never having to leave that ecosystem of like a handful of economics departments, um, a handful of, inst- uh, uh, think tanks and, or, and, and organizations, you know, it's, Cato or von Mises or the Institute for Humane Studies or George Mason University or whatever it is, right? Like, you know, it, it's a, I mean, it, it, going back to what Jeremy was saying about taking jobs to learn skills, it has at the same time been like, like, like extremely useful for me um, in, you know, after the fact to actually have this like really deep understanding of what these people think because they do have so much power um, as well. Like, but also to have a, an understanding of what they think because I was a true believer in it. Not like, not the critics understanding where you're reading it, you know, being like, this is all really stupid, but reading it being like, this is correct. This is right. Um, and then after the fact, realizing how stupid it was. Um, so that, that is actually, that has become really useful. And also just knowing the freak beat of all these people <laughs> like Murray Rothbard or Ludwig von Mises or Lysander Spooner or whatever, right? That like most people have never heard of. But again, Ostia, as we it was the poetic about, one. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, but like, as we talked about with Quinn as well, like these people that, uh, no one else has ever heard of, but actually are like the real intellectual foundation of all of so many of the things, uh, that we have heard about, like the policies and the institutes. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I feel like it was incredibly useful for me to have to reason my way out of it because I, in the moment, it felt like, oh, well, this is this grand theory of the world. This this makes sense. It's like if we just gave people more liberty, more freedom, we'd have a better world. And then, uh, then understanding what the the trade off really is with what they're calling liberty, or the exploitation that's underlying, um, what they would call uh, freedom. And uh, seeing, seeing this for myself and, and realizing that these are very simple answers to complicated questions. Um, I, I do, I, I also, I, I appreciate that. I, I 
see that libertarian thinking even before someone might identify as libertarian just based on like their inclinations and some of the kind of ways that they um that they see a problem and what what they consider a solution and i i yeah i haven't ever written about this aspect of my life and i i kind of i i'm grateful for people who are chronicling that world like quinn um but yeah, it's, it's, it is a teenager's like, it is for teenagers for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever thought about trying with what, you know, going undercover in the libertarian world? I feel like, like you said, we are all thankful for, and undercover in the sense of like, you know, maybe not getting a job at the think tanks, but I'm always interested in what the socializing and the pipelines look like and what some of like the little cadres look like now because it feels like there is a much larger sense in the culture uh, of you know maybe the, those vulnerable periods in which libertarians might pull you in and it also feels like because there's been a bit of a lurch towards more right-wing mm-hmm. social views that's been explicit with the embrace of some of the weird ideas of hobby hobby um and and the other white supremacists or white nationalists that have crept yeah, into Hans libertarian Herb and hop. yeah 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 that motherfucker you know we had we talked about him a little bit on our episode on um Hayek and um and Friedman um I'm I'm always curious you know what the internal logic looks like at each iterative step especially as the larger movement is radicalizing and moving further and further to the right at the same time as the culture kind of. Uh, managing to expose people to those idea, ideas at earlier and earlier moments. Yeah, that, I, I should say that the period of time that I was involved in libertarianism was was, was the was early odds. It was, yeah, it was yeah, before yeah. this moment, which I I think I, I do kind of wish there were more as niche as as it is. I wish there were more reporting about that community because I know there is a lot of of debate happening in these spaces that there are, there are thinkers that I, I consider um, earnest and sincere about libertarianism as limited government in a, in what I would consider flawed utopianism, but they are still, they are still open and things like open borders would be something that they'd argue for, or, you know, that that's, that's like their, their legitimate thinking. And then there's someone like Peter Thiel, which is like, can we call that libertarianism? Is it just straight up fascism? Like, is he just using the language of anything to justify what is fascism? And then there is also that, that strain of uh, that, that who is the the hipster white supremacist with a haircut that was like all over the news Richard Spencer Richard Spencer like he was mixed up with people in the Ron Paul campaign like those were his buddies so he there was some of that because these communities are so niche you can't be 15 people and call yourselves a political ideology you do have to form some alliances some are making alliances on the left others are just being absorbed by the right um or the fascism i don't even know if we whatever we want to call it i i just i i think where i have i as soon as i gave up libertarianism i didn't want to go back there i, I really did not keep 
in touch with people I knew. I I st- I completely stepped away from it. I haven't really followed these debates, but I but I hear about it, and it's interesting to me because there are people that I do believe are sincere and good people um, who who could be who could make alliances with the left on, on certain issues. But uh, at the same time, if you're funded by Coke dollars, there, there is a, they want their money's worth out of you. I feel like, cause I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big student in social ecology. Some of the things on paper look like some of the tenets of libertarianism. And in, in a way people considered social ecology libertarianism before it was co-opted by folks on the right. And became less about uh, community and more about individuality, and I think that's the big difference. And and then, of course, with with individuality comes xenophobia and racism and all the other horrible aspects of human nature that that justify our our need to exclude people from our lives. And I think a lot of libertarians there there's the emphasis on me, and then below that, people who look like me. So, you know, this is generally why you see so many libertarians caught up in these, like, fascist, right-wing, white supremacy, you know, like Richard Spencer, is because, you know, I care about me and tangentially care about people who look like me and share the similar values, but everybody else can burn in hell. You know, the a lot of writings about libertarianism and social ecology is more about less self-reliance on big government and people telling you what to do and more reliance on your community to help you through things. You know, I like that idea. I like the sense of community because it also comes from a standpoint of like, you know, you had mentioned earlier, like queerness, like a lot of queer people I know identify as leftists because society on the whole doesn't accept a lot of queerness. It doesn't accept a lot of those things. The need to strive for community is something that can be found and the tenets of social ecology as well. Yeah. And communism. Well, I mean, another thing to keep in mind why people might be driven to libertarianism is like limited government might sound good if the government sucks and our government mm-hmm. sucks. So less of that, uh, but more of something else is like the, the, the part two there. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the other side is that it's like, it's, the state or market, right? State or capital is like the way that it's framed. And then there's, so it's like, if you reject one, you have to like embrace the other. And that's, a, that's all libertarian is, right? It's like rejection of the state and an embrace of, of capital as the real, you know, machinery of, of freedom, right? As David right. Friedman would put it. But, uh, Mechanized boots to step on us for the rest of that's history. That's right. That's right. But hey, those boots are <laughs> private property, Ed. Uh, and clean. So you can lick clean. them. I'm not saying you gotta lick them, but you can lick them if you want. Those are not GI boots. They're those are not government issued boots. Those are private yeah. property boots. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> they feel better on your throat. You know, more ergonomic. <laughs> <laughs> All 
right. Well, I think this is a great place to, to, to wrap things up. Joanne, it was so great to, to talk to you. Um, and really, really great to have, uh, an excuse to sit down and read your book. I, 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 must admit, I was reading your book um, while sitting on the beach in Hawaii. Um, so I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm a terrible condi- you know, place to do it. And no, it was it was great. It was so good to have a, a, a novel um, on the beach. And, and so I really enjoyed uh, reading it. Wrong way for people to go pick up now. It's out now. Um, grab a copy. Uh, if you listen to TMK, um, you will definitely enjoy Wrong Way. Um, Joanne, is there anything else that you would like to, to plug or direct people's attention to? Um, well, that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm going to be doing a few book events. I've, I've got a, a few. Um, if you just check me out on Twitter, you can find like some of the events I'm doing in Boston, Providence, uh, I'll be in San Francisco sometime early next year and probably Portland. And then, yeah, December 4th, Wonderville in Brooklyn. I love to see you there. And this, this has been so great. It's been so great chatting with you, having listened to the podcast for so long and having really appreciated everyone's work. Um, I, I, I'm just so happy to, to be here. Hey, well, Thank you for coming. Yeah, feeling is mutual. Um, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll have a link to your Twitter in the episode um, description as well, so people can just check you out there for those book events. And um, um, people can also find us at, at uh, patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Um, got a lot of great ones over there, a lot of great ones uh, in, in, the, in the can. So um, check us out over there. And until next time, later. Uh- Adiós. Yo, 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 yo,